Welcome to Collector's Corner, the premier digital art platform. We help collectors gain and maintain their edge, all while appreciating beautiful art. Let's jump in. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Collector's Corner. Today, we are doing another installation of Creator's Corner. I'm with the fantastic Ben Tritt, founder of Art Matter. And uh, also, we have here, you, folks watching on video, you'll see there's a Somebody who's grayed out, that is Faye, a member of Ben's team, who's also amazing, and uh, will be showing us some of Art Matters Studio when we get to that part of the conversation. But really, really excited to be chatting with you, Ben. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Um, been looking forward to this for a while. Likewise, likewise. Appreciate you managing the schedules, and especially with everything that you all had going on. I know you had big event at NFT NYC, which you were gracious to invite us to. Really was awesome. It was showcasing Zanken. It was called Organic Matter. And it was just, I mean, you have a beautiful space, a beautiful story, which I can't wait to get into. And all of your team is so kind and humble, hardworking. So we were super impressed and really grateful for you hosting that event. And as I'm sure everybody there was Thanks, man. It was it was great. It was great having you. And you know, for us, it's a real labor of love. Um, so the community, uh, the feedback, the support is is everything to us. You know, so really, it's a, the thanks goes back at you. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about labors of love. I mean, I think it's so cool that you've been working. Uh, you've created Art Matter a, a decade ago, um, from my understanding. Probably conceived of it even before then, and it's just. So like it's inspiring to see somebody following their passion and and making it work. You know, I think a lot of us like I've I've talked about it before in this podcast. There's been this dissonance between you know do I do the the standard Indian thing and just go get a stable job as a doctor or an engineer or something or or follow what I'm really passionate about and see if I can make it work. And I think seeing folks like you make it work is inspiring to others who are having similar thoughts. Uh, thank you. If, you know, from the Jewish side, the same, same pressures, same expectations. Um, but I, I appreciate that. It's also something that's, you know, it's like, like any, like any, any of the arts and anyone in the creative field. Um, it's a nonstop, um, I was going to say battle it can be a battle. It's also just a nonstop pursuit, you know? And I think, uh, I think that, that uh, if you buy, if you hear a little bit of um, background stuff going on, we are we are in the studio here, so it's a lot of reality in Art Matters. It's like you know, we don't have to a lot. So if you hear grinding, um, printing, robots, anything, that's uh, it's uh, really what's happening in the back. Um, but the uh, that pursuit, you know, is, is something that um, I think creators live for, and I feel like every everyone every artist has their thing like the questions that drive them the things that they're most compelled to find out about um and you know if they're honest with it if they're really genuine they let it direct them in the ways that it wants i want to say it wants rather than what they want um and this is this is not what i expected to be doing in the beginning at all um but I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to follow the the breadcrumbs that I feel like were laid out for me, 
Um, and honestly, like it never stops. Like day by day by day, I just feel like it's constantly new things to discover and new paths to go down that um, it's just a constant discovery. Oh, that's awesome. Like I, I can tell we're going to have a great conversation. I, I've been thinking about these types of things a lot lately. And, uh, you know, I was actually watching a little clip from Jerry Seinfeld and he was talking about how he's, you know, he's creative. He, he makes jokes and he's constantly thinking about jokes nonstop. And I forget who the host was. I think it might have even been Howard Stern, but he was like, isn't that torture? And he's like, well, I guess to some people, but that's what that's what it's about. It's like finding the torture that you enjoy. And <laughs> I heard that quote. I heard that. <laughs> I'm laughing because I heard that quote. I thought it was hilarious. He said something like, I didn't hear it in the context of, of being a, a comedian, but he said something, what I remember was uh, um, choosing like the the torture that you're most comfortable with, you know, something like that. Yeah, because it, it is uncomfortable, like following the breadcrumbs, like not knowing where it's going to go and feeling like compelled to do it despite, I don't know, what your family or society tells you, what you should do. And a little bit, scary because you don't know where it's going. And I mean, when, when you all were talking at the organic matter event, you were talking about how it was, you know, like, like a lot of things, things went, uh, probably not as planned leading up to the event. So it was a bit of a scramble and you probably, probably some late nights and, you know, that's not fun per se, but in this weird way, it's satisfying, almost like, you know, a really hard workout is satisfying and, you know, doing something that doesn't resonate with you, but, you know, whatever is like more, uh, uh, what's the right word? Like, like more traditional, right. Or more, uh, stable, not as busy, whatever, probably wouldn't give you the same satisfaction. So it's just like this, you know, torture in a way, but it, but it fits for you. There was, there was on this, there's, uh, there's something that, that really inspired me many, many years ago, probably, uh, probably 20 years ago. I don't remember. Um, Lauren, Lauren Hill. MTV Unplugged. Um, after her uh, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, that was one of the probably best-selling albums of all time. Um, disappeared for two years. I think like you know biblical studies. She was like just doing her internal research, and she came out and she did, as far as I know, one um, one performance um, on MTV Live with a guitar, playing these songs that she had written most of them biblically inspired, if not all of them. And, um, and she was talking in between these. And it's just, it really blew me away, both how deep she went um, on the biblical side, that's one thing. But second, just her life lessons that she shared at the probably ripe old age of 26 or something, whenever she did this, was mind blowing to me. And one of them um, was, she said that she's come to, she, she made a comment about not getting dressed up for the occasion. And she's like, she said something like, I'm not fronting anymore. I'm not fronting anymore. I'm just, you know, here we are with like, uh, in this industry where you have tons of energy, tons of talent, tons of, of, of just people killing themselves, slaving in order to produce something that really is like absolute labor of love, slaving. I think that's the word she uses. And then they go out and they try to make it look easy. Um, which on the one hand you hear, but the other hand, she's like, you know, it's not reality. I want to show people reality. Um, 
And I've been thinking, I've always thought about that as containing some really interesting level of truth for creators. And I think now in this process, I see it a lot more with in the NFT world and, and you know, digital art in general, where people are showing process. And like they're taking people on the journey more of what it took to make this thing in the past, where they are now, where they want to go. And like there's a community of people showing how things are made. And I think people want to see the reality a lot more than they want to see some polished facade. You know, and I see this like I see that playing out on popular social platforms, right? TikTok is like not known for beautiful polish. Um, but uh, but I also I think as a as a creator, it's a really powerful message. Like what you said, like we no matter how hard we prepare for anything, we are going right up until the last minute because, you know, it's not just because we're trying to make it look um, polished. It's not a Broadway show. Um, it's something that is a constant quest. And we only stop because we need to show the works where they are. But we also want people to know this is a thought process. And you're coming into the exhibition to see this thought process midway. And that goes for an entire artist's career. It goes for an entire movement, right? It goes for an entire century. It, it, like, you know, like there are these periods where you just, you're in the middle of something and uh, we want to prepare it so you have a good viewing experience, but we don't want to, we don't want to cover up the good stuff, which is the human story behind why we are slaving to do this and just how, you know, just how challenging a lot of the stuff is. Why, like, what other challenges? Why are we facing these challenges? Is it just to make it look good and impress people and sell? You know, not for us. Um, we do want it. We do want all those things, of course. But you know, there's there's a there's a deeper message there that we that we care about, and we're trying to have a good experience for people to come in, whether as an artist, whether as a viewer, whether you're a developer, engineer. Um, but we want to have it be an open kitchen to invite people in to experience stuff that we experience which is this constant daily struggle to make this vision um a reality it's a shared vision that we feel like we're crafting uh you know literally day by day that is impossible to articulate perfectly right but we're trying to make the most of human creativity and we're taking things that were developed thousands of years in the past and we're working with cutting edge technology and, and cutting edge ideation to, you know, to just like really see how we can push human creativity to the next, the next level. Um, this is so cool. I, I, I love so much of what you said and you're right. I mean, it's, it's like from the standpoint of a collector, right. Uh, I really appreciate when I hear about the process for an artist, it makes me connect with that artist more. It makes me appreciate the effort and the thought that went into it. And so I, I completely agree. And that Lauren Hill experience you had, I'm, I'm glad that stuck with you because I think it's it's right on the money. And I like so much of what you're saying. Uh, but you know, at, at a meta level, I hope that this this podcast episode podcast episode can be that a little bit for Art Matters. So we. We can hear about how it all came to be and that journey itself. And I think that increasingly with the technology, you know, people have talked about NFTs as not just that final product, but as that whole process. And, and can you encapsulate that as well 
as something that the collector can experience. Maybe a snapshot of it, but certainly more than we we get from just that final product. I think it's it's fantastic, and I think there's so many human pursuits where we really really appreciate seeing that effort. Right? It's it's kind of like you know if if you play tennis and you see Wimbledon, you can kind of understand how hard it is what they do versus if you don't. Um, and, and no, not that you want to see like every minute they're in the gym training or whatever, um, but to get an idea of that is is really powerful and inspiring, right? It's like, wow, well, if somebody else can do that, maybe I can. Um, so I, I think that's a great segue into just a little bit, like just lo- would love to hear your background. Like, where did you grow up? You know, when did art become a part of your life? And uh, I know we were talking a little bit off camera. You were a teacher. Just love to hear your your early story leading up to Art Matter. Yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, uh, it, it's so often true we're we're really a product of our parents. Um, so my my dad was a uh, was a an artist. Our teacher eventually became a a, a principal of a school. Um, but he, uh, unfortunately lost him uh, six years ago, but, um, but he was such an inspiration, um, to me. He studied with Mark Rothko, um, and Ad Reinhardt, you know, two like, uh, leading abstract painters at the time. Um, and he brought all of those conversations and that history to me as a young kid. He also took me to the Met Museum and the Frick Museum all the time. I grew up, uh, born in Queens, moved out to Long Island. I grew up there, but, uh, you know, so it's like 45 minutes an hour train from the city and, and uh, grew up just going haunting museums more and more. And, and my dad just opened that world up to me. Same time, my mom was a, um, also went into education, but started off as a um, math teacher um, and a computer programmer, programming mainframes in the 60s. Um, and she eventually became a superintendent of schools. So they were both like higher level management um, in education and art and technology. So uh, my life was, I, uh, I started going down the typical Jewish uh, route of expectations. I, I was pre-med, um, realized, and I loved it. I also just was more obsessed with painting. Um, I, I dropped out of school midway, moved to Italy for a while. I uh, just decided to become a painter and I, you know, I loved it so much. I almost didn't want to do it as a career, but I just knew that it was my love and um, moved to Italy, came back, got a degree from the school of visual arts and painting. I knew painting was my thing. At the same time, I had this deep feeling deep in my gut from the time I was probably 16, that there was something glorious about painting and there's something very wrong with painting. And like, I never knew how to articulate that feeling perfectly, but what it led me to was um, thinking that I needed to have an impact, have an impact on art education. So I, I ended up moving to Israel, co-founding a school. I, I became very friendly with a very wonderful painter, very amazing painter named uh, Israel Hirschberg, um, who wanted to open a school um, so I, I became uh, assistant director uh, to him, founding a school that was, we did this in 97, 98, that was academic in nature. 
and it was an international program. So it was part part Israeli, part uh, part part uh, you know, international. Um, and we taught really like good old fashioned, you know, landscape painting, figure, still life kind of thing, really academic painting. And we took students to museums um, outside of Israel to the Met National Gallery in London, in uh, Washington, uh, museums in Italy, and we. Um, took this approach of taking taking um, a look at the best things that have ever been done and then trying to come to the same kind of level of quality, if you can say that, right? Uh, height of, of skill, but with an approach that was more relevant to today's materials and techniques, but also thought. So I kind of felt like, and I taught there for seven years and, um, at the same, so there was a lot of old master copying in museums, which is you take your easel, set that up in, uh, in museums and copy stuff, you know, in a way that you think is the most efficient, uh, paintings. And this is copying Vermeer's and Velasquez and Rembrandt's and Titian's, and all these great paintings up to, you know, impressionist paintings. Um, and we, and we, we, we did that. I eventually left and came back to New York because I was, I was happy with that. But I also wanted to take it a step farther um, because I felt that the needs of, of um, the needs of people today, or um, when I say needs, I'm referring to aesthetic needs. I don't know how else to put it, but like, there are natural desire to consume visual, you know, visual goods. Um, and, uh, the, 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 the type of input you're looking for is something that has been so, uh, dominated, let's say by, by photography, film and digital, digital tech that I felt like it was somehow eclipsing the part of the brain or the part of the psyche that for most of history went to painting and drawing, right? And it was going to these other realms that's related to painting. It's visual art in a way, but it's different, fundamentally different in some way that you can sort of understand, but it's hard to get to the root of what's in right? So um, that's kind of a preface for me saying that I, I, I felt like I wanted to take my exploration of how to take ancient ideas, ancient principles, and bring them into the world in a way that's more relevant in terms of the application of those principles. Um, I wanted to take that to more to, towards the space of technology. And I, I went through many different variations of figuring out how to do that. First, I went through architecture and started personally in my own work. I was like showing with galleries, some blue chip galleries in New York and Paris, and went from doing paintings on canvas and doing big structural paintings um, on new materials, on um, construction panels made out of aluminum, things like that. So I was doing paintings that could be incorporated into architecture. And, and you were you were making these paintings yourself? I was making the paintings myself. I did I did an installation um, on the on the Rue de Louvre in, in, in Paris, um, near the Louvre Museum, right outside the uh, stock exchange on the street. Um, I did I did a bunch of these. I, I was, I was living in France for, for a bit and I, I did a bunch of these things uh, in Paris and Nice um, 
and uh, some other stuff in Normandy. I also, um, in the end, did a about ten years ago, nine years ago, did a, a piece in Bryant Park where I, it was a sixty-foot freestanding structure um, in the middle of Bryant Park that was essentially one big painting. Um, but the experience was horrible, horrible. So much so I thought um, uh, many aspects of it were horrible. One is the art world um, is extremely complex, extremely hard to navigate. Um, the second reason is that the conversation that was happening between, I felt myself, or the you know, creative people involved and the engineering level was so difficult that it, it almost like planted this, the seed in my head that um, as much as I'm interested in the art, I'm more interested in um, the future of this culture. Like I was sort of getting closer to answering this idea of like why I thought there was something wrong with art. Um, there was something in the culture that doesn't allow it to flourish in the way that I feel like it should. And you think back to these periods, whether it's um, ancient Rome or whether it's the Renaissance or whether it's, you know, 19th century Paris or whatever, whatever that period is in your head, uh, or it's, you know, 1960s New York, whatever you think is that period in your head where things were flourishing and you, you know, you wonder why couldn't things be like that? There's some underlying set of ingredients there that make, that catalyze this, this sort of, this energy, you know, this, uh, these things to happen. And I felt like the, um, there's something missing from the equation. Part one of those one of those ingredients was this this this, uh, this break between what was happening in in digital tech and and the way just film photography you know, motion pictures is evolving um, and the and the the way that I think we look at at painting. The other thing was just in the broader context of that was why um, creators and engineers that in different points in history were very, and architects, right, were very, very close. They shared um, common lexicon. They shared a set of interests. Um, those, that seems to have diverged, right? So I, I thought, you know, there needs to be a much more, as art and technology become more inclusive and more mutually dependent, there needs to be a different language, almost like a different place like a conceptual place where they can come to kind of get to know each other again, you know? So at some point I just said, screw this. I'm leaving New York and I'm just moving to MIT. So I, I mean, it wasn't like out of the blue. I had some contacts there, but I, um, I met some people that I, I thought these, I met some folks there, um, not only in engineering, also in um, administration, and uh, some really amazing people there that I felt were, 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 were expressing the type of belief and sentiment and curiosity and engagement that for me, like harking back to those, those, uh, those periods, you know, that I felt catalyzed the spirit the best. And I thought, this is where the actions happen. So I ended up at MIT um, teaching courses. This is like started going eight over eight years ago. Um, teaching courses where 
Um, I was, I have no technology background. So I started getting up to speed, knowing a little bit about a lot of adjacent technical areas, enough to be able to assemble mechanical engineers, software engineers, physicists, like AI, material scientists, all of, all of these disciplines around an idea of looking at painting as a space and almost like as a conceptual space, right? Um, with the, with the premise that every creative discipline at that point had been totally fundamentally changed by digital tech with painting being probably the one exception. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to have people understand exactly why, um, that, that, uh, that is the case. Um, and look at a way to remedy that fundamentally by looking at the enormity of what's happened in digital imaging as a whole, both on the human talent side and on the tech, right? It's been this incredible space, which has revolutionized photography and film, right? So special effects and gaming and animation. You have this, right, the most glorious things that have ever been made, right? But they're confined to a screen. Yeah, interesting. So, so specifically painting, right? Not the visual arts, but specifically painting. Specifically painting. I wanted to take that and move that into the physical space. Yeah, so the, I think this is fascinating. Like, I love the through line of trying to understand these really seismic shifts that are happening in our world with technology. And you mentioned how painting was perhaps a little bit almost like skipped over in in the in the wave of technology because so much uh, so much of it was focusing on like photographs and video and whatnot and like how did you even start thinking about applying the the physical with these other engineering disciplines like i suppose you had probably some civil engineering with these large installations that you had done before that mixes in with architecture uh, but mechanical and, and software, like how do those ideas come together for you uh, in, in what must have been a, a, you know, interesting, like a very brilliantly creative place. I mean, I think we traditionally, or at least in the schooling system that I went, grew up in, we don't think of engineering as being necessarily creative, but it actually is quite creative. It's just, you know, the output is not something visual or of what we think of as artistic, uh, but yeah, I'm curious to to hear how interacting with all those engineers and being there helped shape your your eventual ideas for art matter. It was it was so instrumental. Um, first of all, just being at MIT um, was was just one of the great experiences of my life. Um, it is the, I, I was teaching painting to these engineers um, and their curiosity and responsiveness and speed at picking up ideas that had been totally foreign to them was mind-blowing like the level <laughs> the level it's not just intelligence you know there's a, just a level of just raw curiosity and passion that was just it was it was uh extraordinary and i i i helped to arrange and guide um probably the largest art tech hackathon in the world um called ha hacking arts and i i was asked to do the keynote one of those first years. And I was really thinking, what am I going to say? So it was intimidating as heck, you know, like thinking like I'm, you know, I, I really, I have no engineering background. 
speaking to MIT professors and MIT students about um, about these passions around painting was challenging. I was really trying to explain where I'm coming from, why I'm there, and what I'm trying to get out of it. And so, like one of the one of the ways I started um, did a couple of keynotes. One of the ways I started one of those was um, playing a clip of Steve Jobs uh, say, talking about why he had his engineers in like sign the inside of the first Mac. You know, they literally signed, they ascribed their names inside. Inside the computer is literally all their signatures, well, several of their signatures, right? Um, and he was asked about it. He said, so, almost verbatim, something like, in a different age, these people would be poets and painters. But they use the language they have available to them today, and that's the language of computing. Right. So I was coming, I'm saying like, there is something that we call painting or we call art more generally that touches on something so intrinsic to our minds and our psyches and our souls that it will find a way and it will find the best way available in every age. That's, that's so uh, prescient, right? Now thinking about our generative art world where so many of these artists were traditional engineers five, even three years ago, right? And now they are artists and they've just been been doing it. Uh, no, that that's beautiful. Uh, and that's amazing. So, okay, so, so you put on this hackathon and then what happens next? Um, so uh, we had just tons of art projects going on. We brought some of our machines that we had started prototyping. Um, in, into the space. Some we were building on the fly. These were painting drones, um, the projects that were already going on in the media lab. In, in that case, it was Sang Wan Lee, who ended up being one of our employees. Um, Tal Achituf, one of my first collaborators, who was building painting machines for people with disabilities. So painting, painting machines that people could control remotely through different remote um, sensing uh, devices like eye trackers, their breath, lasers, like any part of their body that could move, basically be tracked to be able to control these painting machines, things like that. So people with cerebral palsy or any kind of uh, any kind of limited motor uh, skill would would be able to activate um, machines that we had been building ourselves. Uh, Jeff Leonard, who is another one of really our our, our key employees here, a real a real leader in the space, um, an artist and toolmaker in his own right. We started working together and he had this amazing array of these home-built tools, totally self-taught engineer. Um, he brought those up and we did uh, real-time development and engineering um, and art creation with, with, uh, with students of all kinds. So we had a lot of these things going on. And we were, in that case, it was like a coach to um, a bunch of these you know, individual projects. And, and uh, so it was a combination of talks and development and art creation all wrapped up together. Oh, that's so cool. I, I wish I could have attended. I'm sure it have been fascinating. It was a blast. <laughs> it was a blast. And, you know, at that time, were you, were, were, were plotters on your radar? Uh, because as, as us in the generative art world have learned, a lot of the art that was pre-Web3, where you couldn't sell it on a blockchain, it, it had to be sold physically. And so a lot of these artists would, would plot things. And so were you looking at plotters 
amongst the different types of machines that you were utilizing to create art? A hundred percent. You know, the, the very first inkling that I had that I wanted to do this, I remember like literally the moment um, when uh, it was the first time I was able to demo a Cintiq tablet, like Wacom tablet that's the, with the screen that's um, touch sensitive. And I, um, I remember this is so long. This is definitely 10 years ago, longer, probably more than 10 years ago. Um, there was only one place in the city. This is pre iPad pro, right? Like there were like styluses that had pressure sensitivity and, and tilt and all that. It just didn't, it didn't, uh, um, wasn't really out there. Wacom didn't even advertise. Um, so this, it was one place in this, all of New York city to demo these. And it was at a Mac service center. So I brought in my Mac reserviced. And it wasn't even a Mac store. It's just like a service service center for Macs. Um, they were selling some of these. I was able to um, just take a moment while I was waiting for my Mac to come back. And I, there was some painting software on there and pulled it up. And I started playing around and painting on this Cintiq tablet. Um, and, you know, you can pick up these digital brushes and magically paint comes out of them. And you can do these things that have, these paintings that have some of the volumetric may have been art rage at the time that I used, but they had, they, they, they capture some of the volumetric qualities of, of paint, a little bit of the physics. And you have this experience of painting without any of the cleanup, any of the setup, you can uh, zoom in and out without moving back and forth. Um, you can get really, really close up, really far away. Um, you can flip it around. You can do all these magical things that are, that are, that are very hard in real life. Um, and then you can just drop it and, walk away and not only do you have this image, but you have a record of the image. So the playback of the image becomes a kind of source of, of ongoing exploration and material. So like, there was something there that gave me the seed of one, how great would this be if this was connected to physical, but also um, how, how great is it that when you are making anything, um, the digital capture of every mark that you make becomes not only a record, right, for posterity, but it allows you to one, borrow stuff that other people do and riff on it. So in the past, in order to do that, I took my easel, went to the Metropolitan Museum, spent many, many weeks copying an old master painting. And then like, that's my way of capturing, right, their process. It's really, really hard, really slow. And, um, um, you know, we're taking best guesses because all you're seeing is the final layer. This gives you x-ray vision into the entire process, x-ray vision over time into the entire process. For all you just, you, you just see there is an enormous level of possibility here that goes so far beyond what we've ever known. How to unpack this, how to start working. Yeah, did, a, did, did a Lauren Hill song start playing in your head? <laughs> that happened? <laughs> it probably did. I forgot which one, but I was like, it was just this moment. I basically, I stood in front of that Cintiq for five hours without moving without moving, you know, without stepping away. And I only stopped because my back was like seized up. So I was probably just hunched over this thing and I just, I had to move because I, I was in pain. Um, but it was a really compelling experience. And I thought this addresses that problem that I, I felt that I, I, you know, I really felt from the time I was a teenager. 
this is maybe a way forward. There's something here. And one of the clear problems with any kind of computer imaging is the split between raster and vector approaches. And I saw that split and like, tell me, tell me if this doesn't make sense. I'll repeat it. I'm, I'm not sure how Esther. Uh, well, uh, for, for folks who are not familiar, like myself, what, what is the, uh, what's the distinction there between raster and vector? So, um, um, if you, if you've used Photoshop and Illustrator, right, you understand like these programs work very differently. The, the effect of the images is totally different. Um, and, uh, so Photoshop is a raster based approach where, um, images are based up, are based in pixels. And when they're sent to a printer, it's DPI, it's dots per inch. Everything is based on, on the images of grid. And that grid is just composed of smaller and smaller grids. It's just a bunch of bot, bunch of squares that get so small, um, the eye doesn't discern them. But anyone knows that's seen a pixelated image, you know, when you start to discern those pixels, you ought to start to understand what this thing is made up of. Um, it's just, it's a bunch of little dots, right? A printer prints painting, prints, makes prints with a bunch of dots. So whether it's dots on a screen, whether it's dots on, uh, on a printer, it's still a grid with a bunch of dots. So that's like a bitmapped, a raster based approach to images. The other one is a vector based approach where it's just seeing a bunch of points and how you get between those points. So it's just lines. So when you scale up an Illustrator file, a vector image, it can scale um, to unlimited uh, sizes without loss of resolution because it's there's no pixelation. There's no dots. There's no gaps. Right? It's just points and getting from point A to point B. Um, and uh, and um, those two approaches to graphics, to me... I, 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 I looked at that approach and I thought, um, this is so, f this rep, that problem, that gap between these two approaches to graphics represents what painting excels at and, and why painting is still better in certain respects than any kind of graphics. So the, and again, like this, I don't know how esoteric this idea is. So tell me if this makes sense or not. To me, it's just so, so visceral, so fundamental. No, it, it, it makes sense. I mean, I think it's really easy when you get a new technology to get lost in the possibilities of it and miss the parts of the old way of doing things that um, perhaps were, were better in certain instances. And I think you were latching onto that saying, okay, like this is really cool in this way, but there's this, this phenomenon that happens with physical painting that is much harder to replicate here in the digital. And uh, my guess is that started simulating some ideas that, that you're about to tell us and where that went. Yeah, so like basically if you think about um, what, you know, obviously artists, so many artists were, were working digitally and they obviously had the thought, wouldn't it be great if this were physical, right? So I can make all my paintings digitally and then print it and, and, uh, and give it, you know, to a, to a collector. Um, the, the limitations of printing, however, are such that I think as most people know, associate with prints, a print is not a painting and you can see the difference, right? Um, 
if I ask you, like, what's the difference between a print and a painting? What's the, what would you say? Like, what's the first thing that if a, if a little child asks you, like, what's the difference between a, a print and a painting? What would be the, how would you, how would you describe it? I, I think just kind of like that, that fluidity. And to some extent, the, the print is almost too perfect, right? You, you can tell that it, there, it doesn't have the globs of paint that they're probably more evenly distributed. And there's some of that that is sometimes hard to perceive, but I think on some level you, you notice it. Yeah, that's exactly it. That, that, that physicality of it, right? Um, what is, you know, um, the, the physicality that we associate with painting, when you just said the globs of paint and all that, um, that is a, that's a record of how the artist made that work in time, right? In the same way that when you see an old building, right? You don't know like which, which uh, mark in the brick got done before each other. You understand this thing is weathered over a period, whether it's 10 years, whether it's a thousand years. And the weathering on that is something that gives, you know, often a sense of beauty um, or not, right? To a, to a building, but it's a story. And it's a story about time. Print doesn't have that because it's meant to be, as you said, totally perfect, totally mechanical. It takes time out of the equation. And so just like a vector image is going point to point in space, um, when an artist is take, takes a brush and they're moving around the canvas, it's also going point to point. It doesn't, it's not necessarily whether they move the brush in this direction or that direction, but you get a sense of like, this is something that occurred over time as a thought process that made decisions moment by moment to arrive at the thing you're seeing right now, right? And this is a, this is a, a story. And prints don't have stories; they have images, just like a screen has an image. Right, right. So, so no, it's beautiful, and and I I totally see where that thought process went for you. Um, but so, how did you translate that into? The, the earliest idea for art matter and, and how you, how you got it started. I basically said, okay, I kind of said to myself, there's this whole space that can open up. Um, I, I assumed that something out there, I knew it wasn't anything commercially available, like a painting machine out there. Um, but I assumed there must be research. There must be stuff out there. So I went on just a, um, a, uh, a kind of exploration to see what was happening. And sure enough, there was, um, but one, it was almost all happening in Europe because Europe has these amazing painting traditions. And so for the academic, the institutions that are focusing on robotics and these types of things, it was natural for them to, some of them to explore painting. So it was happening in university of Delft. It was happening a little bit in Cambridge university. It was happening um, in uh, University of Konstanz, Germany. They were trying to figure this out, but I realized that it was more from a computer science side rather than a new, an artist tool development side. Like there weren't artists governing these things. It was really, um, it was people either coming from robotics or digital imaging um, that were interested in, the, in these approaches. So um, I, I got to know most of these people. So I, um, I basically, just like I, uh, when I sort of you know, ended up at MIT you know, doing this, I, 
I, um, I got this idea, very ambiguous, rough idea to do something, build something, started offering people jobs before I had any money, any investors. Um, once I, once I found people that would take the jobs, I went out and found the money and, um, I just started, um, uh, prototyping some machines. What do I mean? I, um, went to the people that were most active in the space already. Um, one of them was this fellow, Jeff Leonard, who is uh, one of our most amazing employees here now. And so what he was doing, he was making his own machines. And I spoke to him about making something that um, not only would, would serve him and like he made them for himself, spoke to him about designing them in such a way where they would, they would serve tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of artists. What would be the common denominators of all of these myriad possibilities um, that, we could, that we could boil down to a few things, assemble and get it out there? To, to really help transform the way people are making paintings nowadays. So we, we looked at almost on a, as a principle on the tools that not only replicated what a, what a human does, but could do things that go way beyond what a person could possibly do by hand. So a print head is one of those things, right? The, the things that a printer does, no one could possibly do. But the question was, how to take that and turn it into a creative medium. Could we do that? So one of the most interesting approaches was to take that print head and try and turn it into a brush. So if you can, uh, if you can imagine this, a, um, an actual, uh, good old fashioned paintbrush has thousands of little hairs. Um, and you dip it in paint and you drag it across the surface. That's one way of applying paint. An inkjet head has thousands of little nozzles that can fire hundreds of times a second with insane resolution, insane level of precision for what, for uh, both where and what, how much, what color um, dots uh, it wants to apply. And you know, you move this across the surface Instead of just moving color across the surface, you're depositing paint exactly where you want it to go, according to a digital script that people are already familiar with. So we knew that current prints were totally unsatisfying, but we asked the question, what if we use an inkjet head like a paintbrush? What if we moved it in different paths, the same way that people used a real brush, but we still incorporated images into it? And, uh, you know, sure enough, it was, became obvious. There were things like Photoshop brushes, which is a, you can create your own brush in Photoshop and then digitally paint with it. And as you move it around, even though it, it might function, the early ones function like a stamp, it's just repeating a pattern. It becomes like this, uh, this, it leaves this kind of what we associate as a brush mark, physical brush mark, but, um, it's just a digital artifact of this, um, of this of this tool we thought what 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 would it be like if that was physical and just like you have this photoshop brush um, as a tool in the, in the digital world we might be able to build the same thing same counterpart in the physical world except when you move it physical it doesn't just recreate like a print what you see on your screen it produces a whole other uh series of um let's call it happy accents 
right? Things just like a painter would in real life that, um, that spur the imagination, um, spur the, the, the artist to make constant changes and shifts and alterations in how they're making the marks and the reason why and the opacity, all these different things that, that change in the, in the, in the process of making the work that, um, make amazing images in new ways, translate them directly from the digital space, but allow for um, a record of everything they do and to be able to kind of replay everything they do. Um, but in a way that, that, uh, that gives them um, access to this um, um, a different type of, a different type of, of, uh, of image creation was way beyond anything they ever had before. But yeah, uh, you're you know you're really able to to marry the two, right? You're still able to take a lot of the the benefits from the digital, from the uh, let's call it the the provenance of of creating the piece, uh, as well as by technologically recreating the paintbrush with the many many fine, uh, like the, the equivalent of those paintbrush hairs. You're able to still create, maybe not exactly the same, but a very very similar type of uh experience and and how did you and sorry if I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit but how did you find the first artists who who wanted to to utilize this type of a system uh who were really thinking about creating digital art but that was meant to be painted so to speak yeah sorry i so i i had the very humble um ambition of uh of finding the greatest engineers and greatest artists in the world and uh, I, I, I literally like went out to many of the world's leading painters, a lot of my heroes, um, and asked them, would you do this? And almost all of them said yes. Um, so we were working with Chuck Close um, up until he passed away during, during COVID. Um, you know, arguably the, the, the best, one of the best American painters ever. Um, and, you know, he was, he was intrigued and we, did, we ended up doing some work together and he was prototyping the tools all along the way. But I went, I, I went to many of these. Some of these people um, also became investors in the company. Um, Eric Fischel is another one of them, um, who just I think you know one of the one of the best painters um, you know my generation when I was a kid, a real hero. He also was very very interested in technology. He also had spearheaded in Sag Harbor. Where he lives with his wife April Gornick, a, um, a residency program in an old church that he that he that he bought, and he thought art and tech would be a certain way to frame what he was doing, and he was looking for a group to be a pilot project. And he invested in the company. He brought myself and several of my engineers out to Sag Harbor for four months to build stuff and work with a bunch of artists in his uh, in his network, uh, like Ross Blechner. Uh, these people also like some of like most you know, famous artists from a certain generation um, to look at the tools, look at how they operate and perform in relation to practices that they had perfected over many decades. Um, and then look to bringing this down to the next generation to mid career artists and emerging artists and students. And we looked at every level, how these tools would be built and used by the leading artists, the most demanding artists in a certain level? And then what would it be like for somebody just entering the space and using them for the first time? 
right? So that if you can understand it, it kind of went from a process of working with these traditional artists that have been doing things by hand for decades. They know that this is the future. And we were looking at recreating some of their traditional approaches with these new, with these new technologies and new tools. Um, the other side was like looking at digital artists and seeing how we can bring these people on board that either don't have a history of making things physical at all, or if they do, they're already using printers, right? So they're, it's just an, it's just an extension of what they already do, the way they're already thinking. Um, so both of those sides are kind of co-designing the tools um, and the space together, but coming at it from very different very different angles. Yeah, that must have been fascinating. And another uh, kind of creative mind share, similar to your MIT days, where all sorts of different backgrounds and techniques and thought processes were were melding together. Like I, 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 I gotta ask because I, I, I'm just so curious. Like how? Well, first of all, it's amazing that you had so much. Uh, you know, so many people are rallying around the new idea. You know, new ideas are not always as embraced by the top people, the incumbents, if you will, in a field. And But of course, art and creativity is probably one of those places where people enjoy that um, across the board. How did the the old masters go about even thinking about the, the digital realm? You know, if they're just so used to doing everything in analog and then trying to now take this extra step and, and create in the digital realm prior to, to the output they're used to, like, was that difficult for them or do they just pick it up? You know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because there's a, there's a few things converging. One is that even the most traditional artists nowadays, for the most part, with very few exceptions, they use Photoshop or something equivalent the way that, they would be using a sketch pad maybe 20, 30 years ago, right? If you, the way you normally make a painting is you do sketches, right? You have, you don't just, some people do, obviously. Most have some ideas for a painting and small painting sketches or drawings, things like that. So you're working out ideas for the, for the larger work. Um, most people sketch with their iPhone. Like, you know, I'm not literally sketching, but they're taking images of things or pulling they're, uh, you know, doing, they're, um, they're doing Google searches for images. Now it's more AI, you know, um, so it's all prompt-based. Um, I think we're moving in that direction. Very yeah, I, I was going to say, I was going to say, it makes me think, you know, maybe that's how AI will be, be utilized by a lot of these artists to do the first, whatever, 30, 40%, 50% of it, or just to, to generate ideas more quickly and then take the best ones and run with them. We are already using it. We're already building it into our software. It's, wow. it's, it's getting that good. And it's like, it's such a quick way to go from a thought to a realized um, study. Let's call it a study, right? An idea that is a launching pad for a, for a more developed work. And so they're already, at, like, people are already at that stage where they're using the they're using digital imaging um, for, for the ideation, for the early stage. Now, once they have that, the way most artists, you know, traditional painters use it is they'll print it out 
on a home printer, they'll grid it up or they'll project it onto a canvas and then they'll just paint it by hand. So they all understood, wouldn't it be great? And in fact, many people actually do this. They'll do a print of that image on a canvas and then they'll paint on top. Because now it's getting cheaper and cheaper and easier and easier with better quality to do prints directly on canvas. And, um, you know, that space is, it's limited, but people can use it as a way to um, ideate quicker to a certain, you know, in a, in, to be generous, to be ungenerous, um, fake traditional painting. Got it. Got it. It's fascinating. Well, well thank you for that insight. I didn't even realize that. Uh, and I'm, I'm super curious. So, you know, you are working with all these fantastic artists and innovators, digital and analog. Uh, when when does uh, generative art come in the mix and in Web3? Because I know that's a big part of what you all do. For folks who are watching, you have a couple nouns behind you that I know you you, you printed. Um, you worked with the nouns team. I know you worked with Tyler Hobbs and QQL. We talked about Zancan and organic matter. So, uh, you know, we're super excited that you're leaning into gen art, but how did that come about? So I'm so excited about, about gen art. I'm so excited. I, Us I, too. Uh, for good reason, you know, it, it's, um, okay, so it's, it's a really good segue because I just I ended, the last thing I said was fake painting. Um, uh, you can imagine, there's a lot, of, a lot of projects where people are using printers to produce brush marks on a canvas, a texture on a canvas, and then just printing the color on top. So literally 3D printing painting to look like it was made by hand with old fashioned brushes. Um, now it's, we, we were exploring this as a, as a creative medium, but it's sort of, if you can imagine, it's something that is taking these new tools that have infinite capability to go all these different directions and kind of tying them down to a previous technology. It's the skeuomorphic idea. Like we, we can't, it's very hard to break out of the mindset. We just want to use it in a way which is familiar to us to make things that look like painting. But we were doing this and thinking, we're not using brushes, right? We're using inkjet heads. We're using me you know, mechanical airbrushes. We're using micro valves. We're using all these extruders. We're building all this technology. Um, in order to make it look like a brush, it doesn't make sense. And then um, I met, I met, I started meeting some generative artists. I met Tyler and I just thought this guy is, um, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He's more than brilliant. He's sensible. He's clear. He is looking at painting in a process that frankly reminded me of Cezanne. I'll tell you why. Um, I read a ton of art history. And um, there was, you know, there's a few quotes here and there that I read. I just thought, oh, that is perfect. And this is a quote which is attributed to Cezanne from someone that knew him, knew Cezanne when he was a boy. And he said, um, he used to go on walks with him. And he said, one time Cezanne said to me, I think he referred to him as the master. He said, he referred to, he, he said to me, um, artists, come to the Louvre, Louvre Museum, through nature. And they come back to nature through the Louvre. 
what he meant was that people are inspired to paint because they're inspired by nature and they want to express that connection. When they go back, once they, once they learn how to paint, they go approach nature, they see nature literally through the lens of the art that they have imbibed, that they have processed through themselves. So they're inspired by nature, but they're experiencing experience it again through this language that has been developed over the centuries, right? Over the millennia. And it's a lens, right? It's a lens that you choose. And there's, there's many lenses. You choose the lens that you want to specifically you know, look through. And that's the way that you see the world, like any tool, right? It shapes you. Um, and then I, I watched Tyler's uh, talk, one of, one of many, how to hack a painting. And he talks about developing his code, developing this algorithm to create marks based on nature. In the, this case, it was really based on making watercolor marks, right? And experiencing all of the, 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 the these minute chance happenings with the chemistry of paint and fluid dynamics and paper and all the small, subtle changes as you change the pigment, change the level of absorption, all those different things that create these wonderful, happy accents that give us endless delight. Taking that experience and trying to put that into code. And now, as we started talking, as Tyler and I started talking, it was about how to think about taking that experience of now having this coded version of nature. That's, in my mind, that's the Louvre. That's his Louvre. It's his code. And then coming back to the physical world, back to, na back to nature, through the code. And in that, in that case, that's our machines, right? They have a language of their own. But all of this new approach to mark making is about this sort of love of the natural world, trying to make sense of it in the ways that are most relevant to us today, which is computing. And then using computing to then push that back out into the physical world in a way which is, which is compelling to us. So these tools now are our framework for nature. But how different is that approach than the way peop most people think about digital tech? Most people think about it as separating. Think about how parents are frustrated with their kids, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, dependency on their screens and the way they're, the way, are, the way, the way they are removed from the physical world. They're complete. Yeah, that's it's a super interesting concept. Now I'm like, you're really making me think about this. Um, in you know, thinking about the digital tools as an extension of nature or another portal into it and, and understanding it, and you know, to, in some ways, it it becomes people's reality, right? We spend so much time on them. Even you know, someone like myself, I don't consider myself addicted to my machines, but I I'm on them all day. There, that's that's how we do everything these days. And so, yeah, I, I think I, you're, you're blurring the lines for me with that distinction. I, I, I see what you're saying here. Um, but what if we, what if we could imagine, what if we could almost live and, and, and what if the artist could do this, force people to live in a world in the near future where the problems, right? The addictions that we have with our screens don't exist anymore. Where 
screens don't exist in the way that we understand them, where there is a digital interface that is um, so infused with the physical world, we don't notice it. If that's the future of digital technology, right? I think it's the artists are the ones that need to describe um, what that looks like, what they want it to look like, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, even as, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about the fact that you and I are both wearing glasses and we kind of experience the world through that. It's not a digital technology, but it's a technology nonetheless. And we literally don't even notice it. And, and, and how much uh, um, I was amazed when I just, I only got reading glasses uh, a couple of years ago and I got um, progressives. So like no prescription on the top, just the, on the bottom. And the weird aspect of progressive lenses that really distort how you how you how you see the amount of area that can you know, I can focus in and and um, and how after wearing them for from a few weeks after you know after wearing them for a few weeks how your eyes can how your brain can um, put the information together to distract you from under from the limitations. Um, that uh, uh, from the information that's actually coming into your eye, like the, the way your brain puts that together, um, not coming from a neuroscience side, just on the on the on the experience side of it, the, the, the way your brain compensates the limited amount of information that's there is is uh, is so shocking to see it happen. Having spent most of my life not having this technology, um, you understand, like you. These simple things, right, is changing the way our brain functions. How much more simple are computers in ways you can't understand, right? It's impossible to predict, right? And in the last few months, we've seen this explosion of, let's call it consumer AI technology. And it's, it's just, I, I feel like it's, you know, we're in the skeuomorphic phase where it's like, oh, we're going to be able to, you know, create videos of celebrities and, and whatnot without them you know, they passed away or whatever it is. Um, but I, I'm just fascinated to see how it evolves in levels that are just kind of, you know, multiple steps ahead of, of where we are now. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you mentioned you're super excited about generative art. And of course, there's uh, generative art being a little bit more code native, uh, traditionally, now AI native, as we talk about AI generative art. You know, what are the other aspects of generative art that have you so excited? I could just hear it in your voice and see it. And how do you want Art Matter to, to be a part of that future? So the, the, that process that we started exploring with Tyler Hobbs and then with Zancan um, was amazing because we started going from that idea of nature in kind of a level of abstraction with Tyler to actually making uh, nature scenes with Zancan, right? Um, was something that was um, literally very expressly decided on with them that we as a company, as a technology, we're going to move away from making fake painting, using technology to make fake paintings. We're not making printers. We are going to make a technology that's going to allow for a new type of expression. And generative art is, is the space which is 
at the absolute forefront of that. It's literally the cutting edge. We hope that these artists that come through our pipeline are seeing that this is the portal of this amazing level of creativity, right? Which is taking root on that abstract level of code and making its way back into nature in a way which is as satisfying, as fulfilling, as engaging um, as traditional painting was for most of human history. It's, I think it's still in its infancy. Um, but we're building a language uh, uh, that connects digital and physical. The way I see it, we're taking that dependency on screens, that limitations, that screen, that screens um, currently, um, how do I say this? Limitations that screen, the screens currently enforce and destroying it piece by piece, innovation by innovation, artwork by artwork. You see a future where um, that, that thing that we see as a limitation right now is just a result of this technology being in its infancy. You know, but there is a beautiful, rich, sensual future for digital tech. And we're building that. Right? We happen to be building it with painting, right? But we're helping to, we're, I hope that we're helping people to see what that looks like and enabling artists to show, to show the way. Um, you know, we, when we quoted, when I quoted Steve Jobs early on, it was just, I think it was Jermaine because we, you know, he, he, back in this, in, in the 1970s, if you had stood up and said, make the future of computers is making beautiful computers. Like that didn't make any sense to people at all, but it was true, right? So I feel like we're, we're just part of one of the many voices that's trying to continue that legacy in a much more powerful way. You, you may not be able to even anticipate what it's going to look like in five years and what you're doing, but I want for everybody listening to hear about some of the first of all, the beautiful machines, and, and maybe this is a good time for, for Faye to uh, show off some of the machines. I know there was some some printing going on a little bit earlier, and uh, you showed that. Um, but as as you're showing this, Faye, um, maybe, Ben, you could talk about how in the organic matter exhibition that you did with Zancan, you utilized charcoal for the first time in these images, which, uh, of course, or sorry, in, in these uh I don't know what to call them, in the physical manifestations of the art, uh, which of course has its own challenges because it can only, only so much pressure can be applied while still, you know, creating the, the, the curves and the lines that you want. And it, you know, that also earlier in the conversation, you were talking about marrying technologies that are thousands of years old with new technologies and charcoal is probably one of the oldest that, we have that's been used to express art. So I, I would love to hear that, you know, the story of that and how you even, how'd you guys figure that out? You know what? You're a special guest if Jeff wants to join and explain how he got to invent the charcoal tool. Amazing. So I, Jeff, I don't know if you've been listening. I mentioned you about five different times during this, uh, during this talk. So ladies and gentlemen, um, Jeff Leonard, amazing Jeff Leonard here. Um, Jeff, can you can you tell a little bit of story about about the charcoal tool and how it came about? Uh, sure. Do you want to see some of them? Or? Yes. Let's, I'm gonna put the camera there. The meanwhile, this is what is in production right now. 
This is where the magic happens. Yes. And and for 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 folks who don't know, I mean, you, you got to check out Art Matter sometime. The next exhibition, it, it's out in Brooklyn. It's just an amazing studio, and you just—it's just so cool to see. You know, like you're saying, Ben, not just the final products there. You you have a gallery there, but also how it's made. I mean, it's just uh, it just adds so much richness and depth to the art. So anyway, uh, the way the charcoal tool came about was uh, initially Zancan wanted charcoal. And um, I know that's a tough one because charcoal is so brittle. I mean, I love working with charcoal. I've worked with it forever, but it brittle. I've never used it on a machine. And so initially I made one uh, tool that would rotate a, a charcoal stick and push it down. And it was a uh, initial concept, but it didn't work just to brittle uh, the charcoal. And then I started making some different tool, different idea. This one here is like a brush that is fed charcoal through a tube. And that was, uh, I had another one here. This was a leftover, like I started this, uh, it's a custom silicone cast, uh, piece that has a feed through it or paint or whatever. This was during Tyler Hobbs visit. I was working with this and I tried it with the charcoal and it worked pretty good, but the charcoal wouldn't really flow through it very well. It re really wasn't charcoal, it's graphite, but it gives the same effect. And then from there, I took that idea and put it into a brush and made a bunch of different ones and they, some of them worked pretty good. These all fit onto the end of a tube that is filled with um, graphite. And then they go onto the tool plate. And then I had a, a lot of different versions like this one here is basically the same thing into a, a brush. These are all custom brushes. I, I put these together and with a feed into the middle. And then this one has a little vibrating motor on it just to agitate the charcoal to get it to fall in. And I was still, it worked pretty good. This was the one that Zancan initially really liked, but I knew it wasn't consistent. I had to keep tapping on it to get the charcoal to fall. Uh, this one is kind of the same, but it, it worked even better. And a bunch of iterations of making brushes and and different tools. But anyway, finally, I hit upon this one where I made, it might be full of charcoal, but I made this one, it's the same as this, this tip. This one is actually, those are tiny zip ties. Uh, but the, the point with this one is it is um, spring-loaded. So where when it gets pressed down, the, the graphite falls. And then when you lift, it doesn't fall. And then I, in the, in the, I don't know if you can see that. But then, uh, and I also mixed the, the graphite with baby powder to make it fall even better. And then this one has little vibrating, two little pockets here for two vibrating motors. And the, these pockets are a little bit large, so there's enough room that they rattle when uh, 
when they're on, just enough to keep dropping. And this one, it, this tip here is like a steel, like a clean, like a small stiff cleaning brush. And I found that, that like that, that's a piece of it. Found that that worked the best. I mean, it took, I don't know, 50 versions. I don't know how many. That's the actual tip that is inside here when it presses down. And then I could control the voltage too. So more voltage, more vibration. So that one worked really well. I feel like that was like the real backbone of the whole project. It was so reliable. And then on the other one, I don't know if you wanted to know the chalk tool, the, the rotate, and that was another challenge because the chalk, the pastel is so soft to how to keep it sharp. So we I had this rotating tool that keeps it at an angle and it, it holds, this will hold many different tools, but we could put a chalk pastel, pastel or graphite sticks, anything, and keep rotating it to, to keep it, um, relative, you know, sharp. And then we also could, as it goes in the code, we could gradually lower the Z point. So if it starts at one point, it, you know, you have enough space, it keeps lowering the zero point gradually. So it, it really worked great. It was a, I mean, these kind of projects really push you to like make, uh, and this one really was success. This one was a, as another version of the charcoal tool. I had a motor up here and a wire going down. The wire is bent in here. It was, the idea was to agitate the material inside. This one would have a, the tube on it like that. It would agitate it. But in fact, when one time I finally opened it and looked in there, I just saw like a tunnel. So this thing was uh, completely not working how I thought. And that's what led to like taking that out and doing this other system with the spring loaded and yeah, there's a lot of versions involved, but anyway, it was, uh, in the end it worked. So. Well, it, it, it sounds like you were simultaneously frustrated and also having an awesome time, like figuring oh, this yeah, all out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a tough deadline and push, but it's uh, the, the 3d printer was like working nonstop, but it worked. So that was, that was good. That was good. So anyway, that's the... And Jeff's brain never stops, you understand. He does this constantly all the time. He never stops for years. Well, so, I mean, I'm a, it, I'm a painter, but I, I like to make tools that can make new kinds of marks and new painting techniques, but I am a painter. So that's where it all comes from. Well, and this is so cool because it, it makes me think about you know, one of the, th the things that always excited me about generative art is that these artists are, you know, really applying so much creativity and creating code for the purposes of making beautiful visual out outputs. But I always thought, well, could that code then be repurposed for something else? You know, could it be used in healthcare or transportation or something, you know, that is, is an adjacent? And I got to think the same thing here. I mean, you're going through 50 iterations of just this specific thing, probably hundreds, if not thousands of others, like what are you discovering and, and how could that creativity be potentially applied elsewhere? Of course, that's not the, the purpose of it, but that 
raw intellect and energy, you know? Yeah, yeah. I feel the same. You go into a lot of things for sure. Um, Yeah. And and I I got to admit, I got to imagine you figuring this out for charcoal and pastels. Now there are probably other materials that could be used for aesthetic purposes that now you're like, oh yeah, I know how to solve this. Or this has like similar like properties of, of brittleness as charcoal. So we, we have a solution for that type of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, the, um, I don't know how familiar you are with our earlier project with Tyler Hobbs, but that one was very similar. We had, do you know the, the project with Tyler? Um, if if I recall, you helped create some uh, some uh, physicals for Q- a few QQL pieces. Is that right? Yeah, created a whole a whole body um, of the pieces that just uh, showed a pace number. The unique thing in that project, we used a totally new uh, technique and tool for his thing. Also, he came to us really not knowing what he was going to do. He gave us some visuals that he created you know, on his, on, on, on his, uh, on the computer and try to figure out how to make them. And initially it looked like, you know, it's super clean, super graphic and how to do that with the, the tools we have. And that one, uh, we ended up using like custom cast, well, really similar to these cast silicone pieces, but sharper. But um, what we did was we put down like a base color like red for example in acrylic in a really smooth uh like polished almost uh level clean you know and then once that was dry that was in acrylic once that was dry then i sprayed over it with oil paint white and covered up all the red and then once that set up like an hour or two just enough then we went in with this silicone scribe and like ran circles over it and it, it removed the white and the red remained and it, it looked sharp. I don't know there's videos that we have online, but that uh, removal tool, we're calling these like scribe tools because they're scribing in. But the, that, in fact, that's what I'm doing right now in this test with uh, just the texture scribing into it. But this uh, other technique was like a scribe removal technique or scribe reveal technique. So they're similar, but totally different effect. And it really, that was the the effect that he went with. And it was, I don't think anyone's ever used that before on a machine or this type of system. Worked really well. And then he came back to us for second, um, I mean, same body of work, but a different technique. And that was with a syringe, like custom brushes that are syringe fed. And uh, that one, he had a lot more hands-on work. And I think that was probably the first time he's ever really worked with a machine like that. He has an axi draw, like most generative artists are coming through just the axi draw, which is very limited. I've I've always wanted to make, you know, custom add-ons to the axi draw because it's just a pen lift up and down very a few artists try to you know adapt make a few new things but very very simple really but uh, seeing tyler work on that machine and really i mean see him really work like a painter works with a machine was really fun to see and i get his adrenaline going but it was uh, probably first time to work like that but yeah anyway that's uh yeah that's the Fun part. Oh, that's so cool. 
Well, well, thank you for sharing that. And and Ben, Jeff, you, you guys might have to start making custom machines for folks. They know uh, once they experience the uh, the limitations of the Axie Draw, working with you all, we would uh, we would like to. Not not only do we welcome visitors, but uh, you know anyone that's interested in the space. You know, as much as we're trying to do um, uh, here, we're trying to support as in any way that we can the people that are doing this doing this at home, um, or even you know maybe don't have the impetus to do it do it uh, at home, but want to find some place that is. Um, are you familiar with the Axie Draw? Uh, I I am familiar in concept. I've not used one, uh, nor do I own one, but would like to at at some point. I, I'm familiar with like the the plotter art and saw them in, in Marfa and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, not no hands on experience. I I'm not a uh, visual creative, more of like auditory and storytelling and and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, I'd like to dip my toes when the when once I have some bandwidth. Yeah, the tools that we're developing right now is really for people like that don't have any, you know, trying to broaden it out to people who have never thought to make anything can easily do it. A lot of it is on the software end that, you know, people on the team are working on, but, you know, making it, you know, much broader range that really it's in the air right now. I've been doing this for about 10 years on my personal and right now it really feels like it's peaking with interest so oh yeah i think it's just starting yeah 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 like the evil mad scientist i just <laughs> saw like like my post today on <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's yes. the maker of the axi draw so. by the way small promo moment like jeff is on social like he's on jeff uh, leonard art on instagram and twitter and you would be down to like also like chat with people right oh yeah 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 in fact I, I today i posted like a real early i've been looking through the archives posted a real early early one years ago it's it's a funny one but i saw the evil mad scientist was looking at it so he's the maker of the really good guy i've met him before at, at a, like a maker fair so. oh man well yeah thank you so much for showing this to you we'll we'll link to all your socials uh, and Ben, I, I know you got a, a flight to catch, so I want to I want to get you out here. Uh, excuse me, out of here. But thank you, Jeff. This is amazing. Thank you, Faye. Uh, what maybe you could tell folks how they can uh, you know find the Art Matter offices or sorry the the studio, uh, and you know perhaps like when your next exhibition might be, uh, and any any parting words you have. Hundred percent. So we are. Looks like we'll, we'll be doing our next event uh, end of June, uh, in the in the gallery. So we will be we'll be blasting out uh, info about that in the coming weeks. Um, but our lab is at one thirty three Imlay Street in Red Hook, right uh, down the street from Pioneer Works, which is uh, probably the biggest landmark in the in the neighborhood. Um, and uh, Art Matter Co, A R A R T M A T R C O, on Twitter, um, Art Matter on uh, Instagram, and um, if you want to reach out, just DM us and we'll um, or email us. Uh, you can just you know go on the site, send a message, 
and we will we'll get back to you. Love to, love to chat. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. You're you're heading out soon, so I really appreciate it. Really appreciate your thoughts. I could have talked to you for like easily a couple more hours. So hopefully we can get around to um, or you know a panel or something going because you have such a breadth of experience and have thought so deeply about this world that. Yeah, I would just love to hear your thoughts on, on a lot of stuff. And uh, we didn't get into the traditional art world. Um, you have deep knowledge in that too. And, and a lot of us who don't have that kind of exposure are always interested, but it's a really amazing conversation. Really appreciate your insights and uh, just learned so much from you. And I'm sure our audience will too, listening to this. Um, very kind. Thank you so much. As you know, I, I, uh, I, love, I love doing this. I, I, love, uh, I love sharing. Would love to hear from Lots of, I've been doing a lot of the talking here. Would love to hear from lots of other people in the space that uh, have ideas and, uh, and experiences that go way beyond or just adjacent to things that we do. But we, you know, we're super curious. So we'd love to continue. But really, Absolutely. Really, really a pleasure. Likewise, likewise. Thank you again. I really appreciate you. Thank you for tuning into Collector's Corner. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you like this episode and want to help us out, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on YouTube. Please also follow us on Twitter for announcements as we expand to other social and content platforms. Our Twitter handle is at collectors underscore XYZ. We'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So please comment or reach out. We're always striving to be more useful and get better so we can help you in your collecting journey. The Collector's Corner team and their guests are not registered investment advisors. All views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions and are not specific inducements to make particular investments or investment strategies and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. This show is solely for informational and entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, please consult a professional.